welcome, welcome, welcome to The Working That Is, Coronanat Chronicle. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic adventure. The show is, of course, sponsored by mysticalwares.com, which is Derek Condit's metaphysical supply shop located in Mount Washington, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Mount Vernon in Washington. So if you're in the area, definitely check it out. And even if uh, you're not, or you are, you can still head over to the website to see what uh, Derek has going on over at the Metaphysical Supply Shop. So what is it exactly? Oh, Derek won't be here uh, with us again this evening, but I am joined by Adam, and we will hear from him in just a moment. But uh, first, what is it that we exactly do here on Chrononaut Chronicles? Well, the show has, excuse me, the show has been divided into four parts, the Almanac, Gratitude, Silver, and Sword segment, and the ideas behind, or the goal, the goals behind these segments, uh, well, first off, the sword segment, this is really a meant to be a reminder. And uh, something I just jotted down before the show started was a reminder for uh, a, to have a hero mindset over a victim mentality. So the goal and, and subjects covered in this particular segment are, are there to empower us but empowerment comes from within so it's something only you can do for yourself but i have found these things to be helpful uh for me so i would uh I just thought i'd make a segment to share them right and then uh, the silver segment is uh we we the goal here is to learn something new and this does look at current events and when we do look at current events we try to look for the silver lining uh which may be ultimately that this too shall pass and uh, to be to be completely honest, uh, we could we could call this segment the Azazel segment because I, I get most of my news stories from Azazel News, who uh, has a very interesting uh, history. If you know uh, anything about fallen angels, I guess. Uh, but not to say that he's the 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 entity, right? But uh, certainly interesting name for a news network, right? And then uh, because the next segment, going backwards, right, then the, the, uh, because this is a working and gratitude or love is a key ingredient in, in this particular working anyway, we always start the show with a gratitude segment. And the point behind this is more than just a weekly exercise. It is a reminder to, to perpetuate the heart-brain coherence which we achieve when we enter into a state of gratitude. But to kick the show off, we like to look at, excuse me, the old farmer's almanac for upcoming planetary conjunctions in the week ahead so we can be aware of energies that we can work with and capitalize on. So that being said, uh, not, uh, not a whole lot going on this week. According to the almanac anyway, we have the moon and Uranus conjunct today, Monday, um, and then uh that's about it planetarily. Otherwise, the Feast of uh, St. Francis of Assisi is Wednesday. So big shout out to St. Francis, uh, one of my favorite saints. And if you give me just a second, I'm going to pull up the prayer that St. Francis is known for. Because the last few... Well, the whole thing really is good, but uh, we can. There, there are parallels, right? I've been able to draw between this and 
the four agreements that Don Miguel Ruiz talks about, right? So uh, real quickly here, the famous prayer of St. Francis is, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me so love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. And where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. So that is the first part of the famous St. Francis of Assisi prayer. But the second part is the one that really speaks to me. And that begins with, O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. So this this just reminds me of not taking anything personally, really, is, uh, is I think what it boils down to for me in the whole stanza about not seeking to be understood, but as to understand, right? So just some sage wisdom from a uh, pretty cool guy back in the day. So that, that pretty much wraps up the Almanac segment. And uh, moving on to, well, I did have uh, just a little comment. We, uh, last episode, we had the fall equinox coming up on, on the schedule, right? And boy, did it, <laughs> did it, did stuff fall apart for me. And this kind of rolls into the gratitude segment. So I'll just, I'll, I'll go with it. Um, my gratitude is clean water because my, my, my well system decided to, uh, to need, uh, need a new pump. And this was shortly after we got a softener system, which uh, wasn't working correctly when it was first set up to begin with for some reason. So we had to have them come back out. And then, uh, yeah, so that was last Monday. This is why we didn't have a, a, an episode. So we got the, the water softener system repair guy came out and left sometime uh, in the afternoon. And then he suggested that I drain the hot water heater, which I did. And I was thought it would fill back up. And I went back upstairs to, to do something in the sink. And it was a little funky. So I went back downstairs to, to jiggle the uh, cold water nozzle or the uh, valve intake to the hot water tank. And it, the thing was, it just, it, it failed, right? So there was just water spraying everywhere. Got and, too hot? No, no, no. I just turned it back on. So I don't think it had time to do its thing all the way. But uh, yeah, so a lot of towels and I shut the water off to the, the house. I had to call some emergency plumbers to come out and fix that section of pipe which uh yeah always expensive it um it they they did a little well they 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 got me because i was in the uh emergency bucket right like the 24-hour response team right so i got all those surcharges added but uh yeah yeah so uh, that's all taken care of and uh not to make excuses or anything but when i did finally get done with plumber man uh it was 6 59 when i looked at the clock so it was a one minute until showtime started and i had I called the you know called called everybody and let them know that wasn't going to happen earlier on in the afternoon after the you know thing exploded on me so there's a little any uh, 
any damage to the house? Uh, no, not that I know of. There, the uh, well pump that we got installed was an upgrade. Actually, it's a quarter of a horsepower stronger. So I think that it might have had something to do with, I don't know. Too yeah, much. absolutely. If it's underpowered, you know, plus things sitting for a while, you know, uh, wells have a, I mean, they're pumping all that stuff out of the ground. So you probably got a lot of minerals. You got a water softener. So yeah, they, uh, they don't last forever, nor are they designed to. No. Yeah. So just some unexpected homeownership bills, I guess. But that's okay because it's all it's all fixed now, ready for winter. I think that there's maybe one more section of pipe I would like to get replaced. But that's enough of uh, water talk. This will come back up again in a silver segment too. I just I just have uh, excuse me. I do have some water headlines. But uh, Adam, thank you for being here. And uh, what uh, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for good meals and access to nutrition. I uh, recently started on AG1, the athletic screens. Super, super happy with the product. And uh, yeah, it's just amazing to have that much access to botanicals and nutrients when they certainly don't grow in my neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, supplementing with substances that you don't find in our normal food supply is where i started down the uh, the path with my supplement train but uh yeah greens is not anything i've enjoyed eating <laughs> throughout my life so i do the green powder thing is that what you're talking about is it yeah yeah it's uh athletics green brand so they go by ag1 now okay i started same type of uh type of thing right yeah, we're uh, up here in the north. We're in the what they're what's called the goiter belt. So everybody here has very low iodine. So that's one of the things I started supplementing with is iodine because it used to be in our soil, and now it's not. So then we used to get you know used to get iodine from our food. Yeah, where do you get your iodine from? Uh, it is a nascent iodine. Uh, David Avocado Wolf sells it. It's called. Oh, what is it called? Detoxidine. Okay. I used to get uh, kelp supplements, which was just kelp that's really high in L iodine compressed into little green pills. Kelp. See, see, uh, see yep, just see kelp. Yeah, see one ingredient, I think, on it, like kelp and maybe, you know, some sort of like a, a agent to allow it to compact into a pill. Yeah, pills. I, uh, another just side supplement story, uh, uh, freshwater pearl powder is good for several things, but I'm using it to remineralize my teeth and oh, nice. the capsule forms are way easier to ingest than trying to dissolve that powder into the water. It's almost aquaphobic. It doesn't want to <laughs> eh, just eat a pearl. Yeah. It's already in pill form. All right, so that was our, we've got our almanac covered, got our gratitudes covered, the uh, silver segment, this started off as kind of, I called it the new business segment because this is meant for updates and, you know, current events, 
included got you know added later on but if uh any of the other chrononauts so i guess adam just just adam tonight has anything that they would like to bring to the table i will open up would like to open up first with that before i take over the segment with news news headlines yeah the only one that's uh really big on me is the uh it's the continuing ufo uap talk um that's going on all started by david grush there was a interview released by a podcast called the yes something podcast yes theory maybe um and it was really really interesting because one of the things that i've been fascinated with I, you know obviously uh, if you're not familiar to ufology it's certainly not new everybody thinks it's a new thing but uh this is like the fourth time that we've you know had this brought before congress you know since the 50s um with a lot of i, I say substantial evidence and um con- complete denial by the government uh one thing that's interesting is although grush is one person who uh came forward he's now uh saying along with a uh another reporter matt taibbi maybe um that there is upwards of 30 to 50 additional whistleblowers that have come forward that have spoken about reverse engineering programs with crash materials bodies uh you know everything that you uh you saw on independence day or on x files you know the, uh, the bob lazar story type stuff um but what's interesting is there's been some documents that um, have come out showing that uh, either the Congress or Senate is, I mean, they're taking this seriously and they're actually putting together disclosure documents that, of course, I'm not saying this is true. This is my wishful thinking and looking at uh, what's going on, that uh, we may be at a precipice where, although we might not get the secrets, we may get some of the answers, meaning there's so many people coming forward. There's going to be so much evidence coming forward. Um, that they're going to have to get ahead of it at some point in time. And it's looking like 2024 may be the time in which we start actually getting that acknowledgement from uh, the government that, probably not going to say they've been lying to us, but that they know more than uh, they've let on. And I'm just super, super um, excited for that. I, I think it, I think from an ontological, uh, viewpoint and just for people that in a world uh, filled with so little hope that it's certainly something that could bring us all together um, and especially if we start getting access to being able to you know citizen scientists being able to work on um, these things in a meaningful way i mean if you just look at all the the amazing research that is done just by backyard scientists um you know scientists open source things people where you know uh, the information is out there you know look at just like engineering you know, you go to engineer something that is just a database of knowledge that has been built up, you know, by scientists over time. And hey, here's some new cool tech that's going to show you things that you didn't know were possible. Now they are. That changes everything. Like if you can prove to scientists, hey, by the way, here's some technology that allows you to travel to any point in in space. As a base, maybe it's time. Maybe it's dimensional. Maybe it's even crazier than that. Um, if you can prove and put that forward, my God, what does that do for what people say they can do? You know, uh, it, it took somebody envisioning a TV screen, you know, uh, when cavemen were around. Like, what does that mean? 
So I don't know. I'm just, I'm super, 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 super excited about it. Um, oh no, humanity's kind of depressing right now. That that would be to me like the the ultimate, the ultimate excitement factor for me in life. It is kind of depressing, but uh, that that's why we look for the silver lining, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. They get too bowed down, but I do. I agree. This this is exciting in the extent that it has. It could have, right? The the ability to impact the open market if some kind of technology transfer were to be made public. And not even that. Just just imagine, Bill, that you can take and give people fact, meaning this is a truth that is not deniable. Here's the gift of information. You are not alone. You are being visited. The universe is much more complicated, much more complex, and there's a lot more places to go, and there's much more going on than what's just in front of you, than your local government, than what's on the news, than what's on Twitter. There are some things that are going on that are so much larger. Um, and of course, the flip side of that is I'm also terrified of it because uh, I, I've got a uh, I've got a belief that there is cyclical cataclysm that happens to this planet, and there's a uptick in ufos happening uh you know around the world sightings swarms with military especially with the military they're seeing an absolute uptick and you know i just kind of look at it like it, if i was a phenomenon that had been with human society for as long as we can go back in our records and see it is referenced to if there's cyclical cataclysm before the cataclysm I am assuming that would be a, a great point of interest for whatever. You have an interest in us. This is one of the big things. Hey, this is when you get exterminated by nature and have to rebuild. That terrifies me. <laughs> what are you hiding? Is it aliens or is it the end of the earth? I don't know, with, I don't know man. With, with how our, our thoughts and energy can create reality, it's like, the predictive programming because they they try to tell us something was going to happen on september 23rd and nothing happened right so i think there's there's a uh, a factor of creativity subjective creativity that we get to we get to choose that like i don't know we could. and I'm, I'm weird though because i also wonder maybe there's some big natural cycles that the system operates on you know your computer defrags every once in a while if you've got it set up maybe there's some sort of thing that's built into the nature of where we exist that knows that things will if you just let them be they get completely stagnant you know you have to burn the forest in order to replenish it and there might be some sort of natural mechanism that within all of that within all the spiritual world within um you know other uh, overlapping dimensions that there still might be this you know, uh, system reset that happens every once in a while. So I'm totally on board with the, maybe, maybe we're going to damn ourselves to a fate like that, or maybe, and maybe if you really want to take a, a, a very synchromistic view of it, um, this technology would represent a way to move from this planet. Well, if this planet is in trouble, you know, maybe the universe, God, whatever, uh, I don't know if you've heard the old, uh, uh, the old, uh, adage where there's two guys on a desert Island and the one guy's like, I'm just going to pray to God. 
you know, I'm going to pray that something's going to happen, you know? Uh, so, you know, like, uh, there'll be like a flare that washes up on the beach. The one guy's like, we don't need to shoot it. You know, we'll, you know, we'll wait for God, see a plane flying by, shoot the flare, you know, go get it. Plane doesn't see them. Then some debris washes up on shore. Guys like, nope, nope. God's going to rescue me. We don't need to do anything. Guys like, okay, well, you know, I went ahead. I, you know, built a raft. The other one, he goes off. He gets rescued. And, you know, when they both go to heaven, the one guy's going, God, I died on this island alone. Why did you not help me? Why, you know, why was that? And it's, well, I sent you a boat. You know, I sent you the flare. I sent the flare gun. You know, I sent you the raft pieces. You know, maybe the universe has a way that in the same way that people report in nature when they're living on their own and they have food issues, that there will be certain types of edible foods in the environment that will start growing around them, that there's a, a synergistic, natural uh, helping, that maybe this is just a way of someone, something, some aspect of nature or reality trying to give us the tools to save ourselves. You know, uh, I think George Knapp gave a great uh, idea that, you know, we do this, we take uh, like monkeys and we'll give them tools. Hey, what are you going to do with that? Figure it out. See how you evolve. Well, maybe that's us. Here's a UFO. Here's some technology. Go discover it. See what you can do. Hey, your planet's going to be destroyed. Figure it out. I'm not saying that's the case, but. um God, if that was the case and our leaders hit all that technology from us and damned us to extinction or, you know, a, a repopulation event on the planet, that would be, I guess, not surprising. Hoard the resources, try to survive, take over the new world in power. It's pretty par for course, yeah. But I don't know where I was going with that, Bill, but space is awesome and aliens are cool. It is, but but I don't think that we ever would. I don't think if if we got our our hands on some of this tech, we wouldn't. I don't think that we'd have to leave the planet. I think that it is, it is, uh, within the realm of possibility to save it. I, mean, I know th through I know right I'm just through reading. I don't know right, but the uh, Azazel has an interesting class, and maybe we'll do this at a later episode on fusion powered atmospheric generators. And the work that Nikola Tesla did in the uh, Warden Widencliffe Hotel, and apparently, the, the, this is tech that we've had for a very long time, and is currently being being used right now on on Mars and the Moon. So, yeah, if we could get yeah. some. Well, there's definitely a lot of technology out there that's been suppressed. You know, you definitely see that in every aspect of life. Um. It just happens. If you can make more, more money by shelving a technology, then, you know, that, that low energy thinking, that low level thinking is, you know, what dominates our, our society. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would say this though. I, th I would, I would say there's evidence bill that governments are aware of something like that and they are actively taking proactive measures. If you just look into underground digging, uh, underground facilities by the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. government has, forget other countries. It is extensive. Uh, we're talking about the ability to house millions of people underground. And you can look at, you know, we found underground places before that have been built that can house 10,000 people underground. 
uh, all across the world, there's underground structures, um, natural cave systems and things that people have lived in in the past. And it just really makes you wonder, like, why do you need to live underground? Well, you know, if there's a cataclysm, a pole shift, a massive dose of radiation from space, a massive, a massive uh, ejection from the sun with a micronova, well, underground is the safe place to be. It's the only safe place to be. You know, with your, uh, or not your, but with like the uh, Adam and Eve story, you know, uh, lightning coming down in such waves that it glaciates deserts, flooding of the earth, the slot, the, the rotation of the earth, the slot, like everything on, on the surface being scraped clean. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if provisions were being made for such an event in the future to try to survive underneath the earth. Yeah, there is an interesting map available on the Zazel Telegram with the uh, deep underground military bases mapped out across. Oh, yeah. And country, one of the really the fun ones, it got scrubbed hard, hard from the internet. I don't even remember when this happened, but uh, Fitbit outed so many secret military facilities um it they were not enforcing not wearing fitbits on the military bases and fitbit released data tracking for all of its tracker to show in cities where people were walking so they showed these like hot maps where there'd be like where people had walked repeatedly and it would be like these like circles or designs wherever a person was walking and in the middle of like antarctica there's these giant loops and things in the middle of nowhere and you're like oh well, clearly somebody's walking around in a giant, massive underground facility. And yeah, that stuff disappeared super, super quick. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like how, yeah, I, I remember, I do remember that. Um, I think it is interesting that, remember how we, we were trying to buy Greenland a few years ago? Remember, remember when that story came up in the news? It was tossed out there. No, I don't. I don't it was, it was, yeah, it was three, four, or five years ago, maybe. But it's interesting, because if you look at this map, there are a ton of deep dumbs in, in Greenland. And there's a section that just for the Vatican. The Vatican has their own bunkers, doomsday bunkers, in, in Greenland, according to this map, anyway. But, yeah, speaking of the Adam and Eve story, before all of that stuff happens, it's the wind. Before the water, you know, before the earthquakes, the, the maybe not before the earthquakes, right? But I think the first thing he talks about is the wind. The wind just like if you're on the surface, you will be swept away. And yeah, don't even worry about the fire or the water. Like it's which well, is and that also direct. depends on where you are and where will you end up. You know, the idea is there's so much electrical energy being put in from the sun through to the Earth's core that it actually causes the rocks to liquefy to unbuckle themselves so the crust unbuckles from the mantle and you get a literal shifting of the crust and you see this in uh geologic record people are like wow look you know in the middle of antarctica we found antarctica we found this we found this area that has you know mammoths and you know there was plush greenery and well how why would the climate have ever been that way up here no the climate wasn't that way up there but that landmass shifts when this happens 
And so you're talking about, you know, massive flooding, massive tsunamis, everything shifting. And as that, that is moving, it's changing the winds on the surface, those massive, massive driving winds. And that's even before, you know, uh, the sun decides to explode. It explodes twice, doesn't it? No. Good. Yeah. It's like, um, you've probably heard about this too, where they found a woolly mammoth that inside of its gut had like a, a flower that it had been eating that was still preserved, that had not been digested, and it was frozen to the core. And it's like, how do you take a woolly mammoth and freeze it, flash freeze it so fast that the food inside of its stomach doesn't digest and gets frozen perfectly in place? Well, if you look at like how an air conditioner works, if you have a massive, massive blast, you have a compression and a decompression. When you get a decompression of gases, you get massive cold freezing. It's just the nature of, of uh, what happens. So if you had something like that that blew off a massive portion of the atmosphere, you could have absolute localized uh, freezing on part of the planet as well. Yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. I, I, I love that way of thinking that the hubris of our society today is that we cause all the problems and there's not these giant cyclical changes. Meaning what, meanwhile, there's evidence of ancient, ancient, ancient civilizations that built on other ancient civilizations that built on other ancient civilizations that built on other ancient civilizations that were wiped out. And the only thing we see is like the foundations of their buildings that survive. And those are the ones that we can see that aren't a mile, you know, underneath, underneath the earth. And yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it's, it's amazing that, Hey, maybe that's our planet. You know, maybe that's a normal thing. We are not the precipice of our species and we won't be the last precipice of our species. No, it, it, I mean, that ties into one of the headlines I have lined up for us, talking about how they have now uh, discovered, I don't want to give anything away before we get to the water stories, but basically carpentry is older than humans, anatomical humans, right? We showed up along the scene, what, 200, some 200,000 years ago, I think is the latest agreed upon scientific accepted time frame, right? But, uh, yeah, everything we find keeps going back longer and longer and longer and i know we've talked about it before but you know you have animals that re-evolve based on the environment and come back from another species you know you have animals that will give virgin births when the populations aren't enough like maybe that's just the nature of this reality that there's something that is creating the environment and when the environment is right you have humans humans evolve on the planet and it might not be how long have humans been here. It's how long have the conditions been right for humans to exist. And on a time scale of millions, billions, or who knows, infinity, what does that mean? You know, where is the missing link? You are the missing link. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I'm absolutely fascinated not to, to trail you too far off, Bill, um, but is that if you look at uh, like uh, religious uh, religion, I'm sorry, mushroom cults and religion. So you've probably heard like, you know, the, the entire story of Christmas, um, you know, is a mushroom story. 
where you have um, the Animuscaria mushroom that grows underneath uh, 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 pine trees, the same trees that we cut down. So you have these red and white things. We would wrap up packages and put them underneath. You hang decorations on the trees uh, or you hang uh, socks above your, um, your mantle over your fire as part of decorations. Um, but the same thing was done with drying mushrooms. You would hang, you would tie them to trees or you would hang them over the fire to, to dry. Uh, Santa is dressed up in the same colors as the mushroom. And then even more interesting is, uh, reindeer, the, the real animal reindeer love eating animuscaria mushrooms. And if they see them growing in the wild, they will eat the mushrooms to the point that people who are tripping on animuscaria, if they go outside to take a piss and there's a reindeer nearby, they will come over and try to drink your piss because they smell the animuscaria in it and they want to get the effects. So then you can look at just, uh, there's a guy um, who wrote The Sacred Mushroom in the Cross, I forget his name right now, um, but talks about the entire basis of uh, uh, Christianity being based around a mushroom cult. I say that because I find it interesting when people take mushrooms, they speak to God, right? They speak, they, they go and see entities. I've never done mushrooms, so I can't speak, but just from other people's um, experiences. The mycology on this planet, mushrooms, they are what determines the entire environment on the planet. Uh, they also make up the largest organisms that we know that cover, you know, thousands of square uh, acres underneath the ground. Um, I would say they are probably incredibly intelligent on a different level that we can't connect to. Um, there's a guy who wrote, uh, his name is, um, his name's Merlin. Um, oh gosh, who's the guy that did morphic resonance? Rupert Sheldrake? Rupert Sheldrake. His son, Merlin Sheldrake, is really, really into plants. And he, he ended up finding this plant. Because one of the hard things about mushrooms is to look at, because it has different stages. It has the, my, the mycelium that are in the soil, but then it also goes to a mushroom stage that comes out and fruits on the surface and drops spores. It's so delicate that when you're trying to look at soil, you destroy it by looking at it. They found this tree that had roots going all the way into the ground with soil where they could study what was going on in the mycelium. And they were able to find out that doing different tests um, and looking at the mycelium that they, long story short, if you have, um, well, let me explain why, how they did this. One of the things mycelium do is they are able to um, take these little insects that are inside the soil and they can pierce them, keep them alive, drain nutrients on them and feed them to the plants. Uh, plants are not very good at taking mineral out of the, the soil, but uh, mycelium are. Uh, uh, mycelium, on the other hand, I think this is could be the reverse of this, but I think it is, aren't made good at making like sugars. So they have a, a trade with the plants. They are literally in symbiosis where they trade off minerals. In addition, they also uh, are a key in not only deciding where minerals go, but where water gets transferred between plants in this giant underground network. So now if you have an environment where all of a sudden there's a certain uh, plant that's not doing very well, the mycelium can take water from another area and transfer it over. And they were able to find this out because they would take these little insects or these little bug things in the soil. They would inject them with a sort of certain type of like radio um, active isotope. 
And then they were able to track it in trees and they would find this showing up up to 25 feet away from the original plant. So when you really start to think about mushrooms, if they are these grand architects, they're choosing which plants grow. They're choosing the environment, the types of things that can grow. Uh, in essence, the atmosphere, the soil, all the conditions for animals, for wildlife, for us to exist. And then I find it absolutely fascinating that, you know, there is this idea that spores can permeate uh, panspermia, that they can travel, that the ultimate alien in the universe may be uh, mushrooms, mycelium, spores. So I, I absolutely love that way of thinking because it's completely possible that everything that we owe our existence to is being manipulated by um, an, uh, a group of organisms in the soil that are creating our environment for us to exist in this world for God knows what purpose, but when you eat them, you get to talk to them. Yeah. It's a different level of consciousness for sure. And my other favorite one too is an as above, so below. You take the ultimate, ultimate destructive device that humanity has developed like an atom or a hydrogen bomb. And when you detonate it, it looks like a mushroom. If you go down to the atomic scale and you look at LSD, it looks like little mushrooms. I don't know what it means, but uh, I want to eat a mushroom. Do you supplement with any type of adaptogen? Uh, no, I don't. Although there is some mushroom powder in my AG1. And also oh. in the chocolates, um, the ceremonial chocolate, I still have some of the, uh, uh, the uh, I forget what it's called, but it's the mushroom, the mushroom infused one. Just mm -hmm. yeah. super, super energetic. I actually need to get some of that. I haven't had that in probably six months. I don't know what I'm thinking. Yeah, I try to get some type of mushroom supplement on a daily basis. Lately, I found this new brand of coffee that has dried up little mushroom bits in it, and it doesn't doesn't give you the jitters. Doesn't. Are you familiar with uh with Paul Stamets? Yeah. Highly look, uh, recommend looking into his product lines. Um, he sells his own super refined stuff. A lot of the stuff that's used in products coming out of like China and other places uh, are not clean with either other uh, contaminants, different types of uh, microbial spore or like, uh, like moldy, like mold type stuff, or even just like heavy metals because um, they can be very good at pulling heavy metals out of the substrates that they're being grown in. Um, but he's fascinating too. He was on an episode of Joe Rogan. Uh, and, and for people who don't know Paul Stamets, Paul Stamets literally is the, the definitive expert on mycelium and mushrooms in the world. He is the expert. Um, and he was hired by, I want to say it was the defense department, um, but it was on a study in mushrooms. And he had to fight them to allow them to release his research. And he said, for whatever reason, and it's a super big deal and he won't talk about it, but the U.S. government will not let him tell you why you should eat portobello mushrooms. And this had to do with uh, like uh, bio warfare and things. So I'm guessing that maybe there is a certain uh, 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 bio warfare component out there that mushrooms, specifically portobellos, could be very good at just naturally curing or preventing. Yeah, watch it be like fluoride or something. <laughs> Real simple like that. That would be hilarious. Yeah. Portobello counteracts fluoride. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. But 
you often find fluoride in water to bring it back down to the water thing. Uh, Berkey Berkey water filters is in the news lately. Oh, really? Yeah. You, you're, so you're familiar with Berkey water? Oh, yeah. Everybody knows a Berkey. They they've owned the the podcasting original advertising since like way back in the day. Okay. I mean, before there was ball shaving with Manscaped, there was Berkey water filters and, and underwear. Oh, yeah, I think they even predate Fleshlight. Like, we're going way back in the internet days. I remember hearing about them all the time on the Paracast, uh, a super, super old school uh, uh, paranormal podcast. Well, I found this story in the news. I'll put it in the chat for Adam to look at. It, uh, this is just a, actually an X post, or formerly known as Twitter. But uh, the EPA is trying to destroy one of the best water filtering systems on the market that can remove PFOA and PFAS, PFAS, PFAS is uh, common in my area, as well as other toxins like fluoride and even cesium-137 by arbitrarily classifying the technology used by Berkey filters as a pesticide rather than a water filter. So those 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 black cylinders that go inside your Berkey water system are, are pesticides, according to the EPA. And, of course, Berkey disagrees, obviously. So Berkey is now suing the EPA. It's filtering it, out pesticides, therefore it is. I guess. Um, but it says that the damage has already been done to the business and will prevent many people from being able to replace their filters and drink clean water. Yet another example of how the government poisoning you willfully. The EPA, FDA, USDA, CDC, they're all criminal institutions that are destroying health, not protecting it. This is uh, from in, in, inversionism. On, yeah, on and that's a sad one, too, because it's really it's really difficult to um, protect yourself from, you know, parafluorinated carbons. It's like they are in your body. They are in your environment. You know, uh, it's in your plumbing, you know, Teflon tape, any TFE paste, you know, uh, anytime you go out to a restaurant, they're probably not using ceramic, you know, maybe some stainless, but there's definitely Teflon going on in that kitchen. It's sprayed on wrappers. It's put in all sorts of products. You know, it's water repellent for your clothing, uh, your shoes. It, it has uh, absolutely inundated the environment. There's a great documentary. I highly recommend every single person watch. Um, called The Devil We Know, which goes into the story of how they created uh, parafluorinated carbons. They used this chemical C8, created back in like the 30s. Um, and the only blood samples in which they can go and find people who don't have this circulating within their blood is World War I uh, samples that are on, uh, uh, World War I soldier samples who are on file uh, for their blood. And it's like, it is absolutely insane how much it has. And that's just one chemical. That's just one arguably massive chemical that we know of. Um, and they've known how bad it is for so many, so many decades. And they called it the devil we know the documentary because one of their legal documents that got released um, from them was saying that, look, this is the devil we know. We know how bad it is. We're not going to stop using it. And uh, now all the products that say are their PFAS uh, free. All they've done is uh, change the molecular molecular structure a little bit. Gets called something else. Essentially, it's still a super surfactant. It's uh, it's 
it does not break down naturally in the environment. So it's why they call them forever chemicals, because they are completely non-reactive. Once they're out there, they're out there. As far as I know, the only way they know how to uh, uh, filter them out is using some sort of like a, a high energy electrical plasma um, to actually like uh, uh, on a molecular level, just evaporate them, like uh, break them down using just super high energy and high temperature. And yeah, we've already soaked the planet with that one. Yeah. Another place to look out for forever chemicals is uh, underwear, like active sportswear, yep. especially for women. Like it's, it's can be. It's everywhere. Uh, another huge place is in makeups. And because the cosmetic industry is so unregulated, you can essentially put almost anything you want in those products. Um, and they always test really, really, really super high. You know, not just to mention normal foods, you know, it's used uh, in food processing. Uh, it's used in components. I know in the paint and paint industry, when I was selling uh, uh, paint products, so many packings and things are used. And a lot of those packings are used for food production. People don't use it, but we would have people that would buy uh, uh, paint sprayers and, you know, they're food grade when they're set up in the right way using all the stuff, but they would be using them to, to spray chickens and glaze things and do all sorts of, you know, uh, aerated processes within food manufacturing, uh, even in pressure washing and stuff where you're using to debone uh, and pull meat off of things. It, and it's just wearing away. It's wearing away. It's getting put into your food. I mean, shit, when I was a kid, I used to put, I would just change the oil in my car. And I had a car that I went through a quart of oil a week through burning it because it got 10 miles to the gallon. It was the car had uh, at least 300,000 miles that I know on it. And I would put uh, uh, greased lightning in it, which one of like the main ingredient is Teflon. So when you burn Teflon, it is so bad that if you have a bird in your house, it is so toxic to birds that you can kill your bird if you heat up your toxic pan soap too much and they breathe it in. It is that toxic to them. And yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's absolutely terrifying, man. It's terrifying. Yeah, I would recommend glass cookware for any anything and everything. Kind of a pain in the ass because it's a little slower to heat up, but yeah, just to be on the safe side, glass or ceramic, you're into that. Different type yeah, of and even know. ceramic's crazy because if you look at the ceramic coatings, the reason that they're non-stick is because they're they are releasing a little bit of their surface over time. So even though they're labeled as ceramic, well, what are all the other things? What are the colorings? What are the other ingredients? It's blue this, diamond that, green this. Uh, you know, let's just go back to uh, the Victorian era when, or Victoria era, when green was the absolute most popular color that they had out there. Uh, but it was arsenic. You know, people were getting absolutely poisoned by arsenic from all of the dyes in their clothing, in their walls, in their papers. Uh, even in the the beauty products, take that to the next step. You know, we had that with radium uh, in America, where you could buy uh, uh, radioactive condoms, radioactive supplements, radioactive uh, creams and pastes and things. And it's like that was absolutely terrifying and toxifying. So, yeah, when I look at the world today, of course, we have Teflon. Of course, we have fluoride, you know. Yeah, I'm convinced all... that uh, they're just trying to kill us all. Not not all ceramics are food grade. That's... And even if they call them food grade, what is food grade? Right. Teflon is food grade. Yeah. And then uh, 
Oh yeah, cast iron would be a good another one to cook on if. Yeah, and you have to be even careful of stainless because what are the impurities in the metal? Yeah. Really cheap uh, stainless will have a lot of impurities. It leaches it out. That's one of the things. Like a lot of people drinking out of stainless steel water bottles, they don't even think about the fact uh, that the inside of it is either coated with a plastic or it is coated with a. Um, or it's just stainless and the metal is leaching out when it's got that little metallic taste. Well, guess what? Are all those metals good for you? Yeah. No, no. no. Even I used to have a, a stainless steel water bottle for a very long time and it was, it was medical grade steel, which is supposed to be better than food grade. And that shit still, it still leaches, man. It still, still gets in there. So. I made a great, I think it's a great compromise. Who knows? I use a ceramic coated stainless vacuum insulated bottle made by Kirosira makes my phone amazing Japanese company. And um, I bought this water bottle. I'm super happy with it. So essentially, uh, they coat the inside with ceramic. Uh, so hopefully, I'm not going to be drinking metal. Yeah. It sounds sounds interesting. I use a glass one, but I'm on my second bottle. Yeah, I, I, have, I have terrazzo <laughs> floors, which is like the hardest floor possible. Like, you don't break a tile. You break whatever you drop. Yeah, I, 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 there is no glass smoking ware in this house. I have broken too many pieces. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't have a segue for smoking, but uh, just to finish up the the brick, we, we can take five minutes if you need, Bill. No, <laughs> uh, they did file a lawsuit. Berkey did file a lawsuit this week or last week against the EPA seeking to stop its unjustified treatment and perceived persecution of Berkey water filters based on the decision to treat them as though they're pesticides rather than water filters. So they're, they're going to court. Uh, fight is not over. Go out and support Berkey if you can. Uh, the EPA's decision to persecute the market leader may well cause actual damage to the American people who the APA is supposed to be protecting. Uh, That's so the way the system is, man. Huh? Like they're they're taking money from people. They're convincing people that they're not safe and they need to clean their food or clean mm -hmm. their water. Yeah, and I love because okay, so the next couple of points are just examples of them being cited in mainstream media. For example, uh, July eleventh, twenty twenty three, CVS recommended the Travel Berkey system, both in print and in their broadcast news, like the the show based on the environmental working groups, cap, cap letters, testing that found travel Berkey systems removed toxic PFAS to below detectable limits. And then again on June 7th, 2023, popular consumer health advocate Mike Adams recommended big Berkey systems, reporting that they removed an impressive 99.9% .9 of radioactive cesium-137.4. However, EPA Region 8 is actively working to make these systems unavailable to the American people. Berkey's filters have never caused any harm to anyone in the EPA's arbitrary and arguably irrational new interpretation of its regulations would have a huge impact, directly threatening not only the jobs, like you were saying, 500 plus employees, lost sales, and also the well-being of the American people, the very consumers who the EPA is supposed to protect. Moreover, it would have the same impact on other outdoor water culture manufacturers, potentially putting them out of business as well. So if we're going to take the, uh, take this and foreshadow it into the future, I would be 
definitely looking at uh, looking at your your setup for emergency water, possibly, and uh, just be mindful going forward about that. It's illegal in Florida to collect rainwater. Yeah, pretty ridiculous. Once once I accept something like that, I understand that the entire system is built against you. Anytime you go down the road and you see them planting trees, if you go to the park, you go to open spaces, you kind of wonder, why aren't they all fruit trees? So that a homeless person might be able to just grab an apple and survive, that we can live off of the land. No, you got you to gotta go to the supermarket. You got to buy something wrapped in plastic from a farm. And if you try to grow it on your own property, ooh, you grew too many tomatoes, uh, sir. You're not allowed to do that. You're now considered to be a food producer. And you live in an area where that's not allowed. Yeah, apparently we were, I was driving downtown Grand Rapids, which I hardly ever do uh, over this past weekend. My wife had pointed out that there was a section in this park that we drove by that used to be edible plants. Like, I don't know if they had kale or something there, but you could go up and eat it. And, you know, anybody, it was near a park that homeless people hang out at quite often. And now it's not, it's not edible. So like they they had programs like that, and I don't know why they did away with them, but I mean it, it makes sense to me. You got to put those uh, nasty, uh, little spiky things in, uh, around public areas instead to keep people from sleeping there. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> we need we need we, yeah everybody needs to be their own Johnny Appleseed. That's not a bad well, idea. I don't know if you know this, Bill, but there used to be a, a national day called Johnny Appleweed in which people would take their weed seeds and go plant them uh, all around. Uh, my, fa- my favorite, favorite place is usually in planters or outside of police stations, because, you know, it is a weed, and it just grows wherever you put it. So the landscape crew comes along. They know what that is. Yeah, yeah, and then they take four hours to mow your lawn. Yeah. So, uh, silver lining here, right? Um, there, there is always a solution wherever... There is a problem, right? The the seed of the desire has within it the uh, the tree that w- it will blossom into to fulfill the, the desire, right? So, um, coming out of MIT, MIT News, there's a desalination desalination system that could produce fresh water that is cheaper than tap water. So, talking about Maybe water shortages coming up, water, water emergency. There's there's tech out there that is, uh, well, let's just read about it. Engineers at MIT and in China, of all places, are aiming to turn seawater into drinking water with a completely passive device that is inspired by the ocean and powered by the sun. In a paper appearing today in the journal Joule, J-O-U-L-E, which is a a term for uh, the measurement of energy, I think. Uh, the team outlines the design for a new solar desalination system that takes in salt water and heats it with natural sunlight. The configuration of the device allows water to circulate in swirling eddies in a manner similar to the much larger, larger thermohaline circulation of the, earth, of the ocean. This circulation, combined with the sun's heat, drives water to evaporate, evaporate, leaving salt behind. 
the resulting water vapor can then be condensed and collected as pure, drinkable water. In the meantime, the leftover salt continues to circulate through and out of the device, rather than accumulating and clogging the system. The new system has a higher water production rate and a higher salt rejection rate than all other passive solar desalination concepts currently being tested. The researchers estimate that if the system is scaled up to the size of a small suitcase, it could produce about four to six liters, liters of drinking water per hour and last several years before requiring replacement parts. At this scale and performance, the system could produce drinking water at a rate and price that is cheaper than tap water. For the first time, it is possible for water produced by sunlight to be even cheaper than tap water, says Li Nan Zhang, a research scientist at MIT's Device Research Laboratory. The team envisions a scaled-up device could, could passively produce enough drinking water to meet the daily requirement of a small family. The system could also supply off-grid coastal communities where seawater is easily accessible. So the second part of this article kind of goes into uh, some of the issues they had with getting uh, the salt to, uh, to be removed and, and not clogging up. So they, they, they figured that out, and now they have a, uh, a working, I guess, a better, more efficient working prototype. But to end out the, the article, it ends with the heart of the team's new design is a single stage that, represent, that resembles a thin box topped with a dark material that efficiently absorbs the heat of the sun. Inside, the box is separated into a top and bottom section. Water can flow through the top half, where the ceiling is lined with an evaporator layer that uses the sun's heat to warm up and evaporate any water in direct contact. The water vapor is then funneled to the bottom half of the box, where a condensing, con condensing layer air cools the vapor into salt-free drinkable liquid. The researchers set the entire box at a tilt within a larger empty vessel, then attached a tube from the top half of the box down through the bottom of the vessel and floated the vessel in seawater, salt water. In this configuration, water can naturally push up through the tube and into the box, where the tilt of the box, combined with the thermal energy from the sun, induces the water to swirl as it flows through. The small eddies help to bring water in contact with the upper evaporating layer while keeping salt circulating rather than settling and clogging. The team built several prototypes, one with, with one, three, and ten stages, and tested their performance in water of varying salinity, including natural seawater and water that was seven times saltier. From these tests, the researchers calculated that if each stage were scaled up to a square meter, it's not that big, right? It would produce up to five liters of drinking water per hour, and that the system could desalinate water without accumulating salt for several years. Given this extended lifetime and the fact that the system is entirely passive, requiring no electricity to run, the team estimates that the overall cost of running the system would be cheaper than what it costs to produce tap water in the United States.
Did you see the link I put in put in there, Bill? Uh, no, I haven't checked covered up with you. So let's go back a few years. <clears throat> uh, do you know who Dean Kamen is? I know who Dean Raiden is. <laughs> Dean Kamen is uh, just as equally impressive of a person. He is an inventor. He created the por the portable insulin pump. So if you ever see anybody that has one of those little clear things on their arm uh, that automatically injects insulin, he's the inventor of that. He invented the Segway. Um, uh, scooter, which is another thing he was known for. But he also invented a thing called the slingshot, which is uh, it has the capability of pulling 30 liters of water out uh, out of uh, I'm sorry, purifying 30 liters of water an hour. And it uses about 1500 watts of electricity to do so. It's a portable device, uses any unclean water source that you have as long as there's water in it doing the same thing it's a distillation process a heating distillating a process has no filters in it and i would say more impressively it does not require seawater and although it might not be the size of a suitcase it's the small of like the size of a small like a cooler or like a like a like a, a refrigerator that you'd see in a hotel room and this is on the market like you can buy one of these right now uh, I don't know if you can buy them. I've never researched that. He started doing it to bring water to people in parts of the world that had no water. So uh, instead of uh, drilling you, you know, trying to drill wells in the middle of the Amazon um, where you're pulling, you have all this, you know, massive equipment and everything. Well, here, let's just purify the water with this. You need about 1500 uh, watts of electricity. And they've developed other ways of doing that, uh, even burning methane. So you could create just things where you're taking cow dung or different uh, things that are breaking down and just naturally using that. 1500 watts is not a lot of power to be producing uh, 30 liters of water an hour. Um, but yeah, the coolest thing about his project is when he started researching this, like I said, documentary called Slingshot. Um, but it was cool because he's, they started traveling to the most remote places in the world. And these machines, when they first started, were much bigger and they were figuring out, like, what are the logistics of bringing this in, bringing people in to teach people how to do this? If you ever needed to, you know, repair the machine, um, just the logistics of getting it there and making it work and going to these places that don't have water. You're talking about going to the most remote places in the world, in the middle of the in middle of jungles um, and every single place they went, they found there was um, uh, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola products, people drinking it. So they ended up teaming up with uh, Coca-Cola and they essentially made a deal where I don't know if you've gone into uh, restaurants and you see the giant Coke machine that's got all the buttons on the screen. You push a button mm, and you yeah. get to choose what drink you want and what mix you want. It comes out he of the same that, nozzle, but it can be different flavors. Yeah, exactly. Um, he invented that for Coca-Cola to get access to their distribution network. He said, I need ac access to your distribution to be able to get my product and or these things into these places so that we, they can be utilized. You've already got the distribution. You're already getting Coca cases of Coca-Cola there. We need to partner to be able to get these things because they can basically, they have the infrastructure. They're the only company that has the infrastructure to, de to deliver anywhere in the world. Um, and I was like, that is the, the like, it's so weird when you think about it. Coca-Cola has made it, they've, they've become so efficient at making Coke that it is cheaper for them to make, produce, and fill a bottle with Coca-Cola than it is to make and fill it with purified water.
let that one sink in. And then they're pairing up with a company to bring fresh water to people in parts of the world that just don't have access to it. But yet they have access to clean Coca-Cola. Yeah, Coke did that, I think, in somewhere around World War II. They had made it a point to uh, to make, to they, they said under the guise of patriotism that they wanted a GI. Anywhere a GI was, they could go and buy a Coke for, or what was it, a penny back then or a nickel maybe. So that's, I think that might have uh, had something to do with their... Vast... Back when it actually made your nose itch. What? Uh, cocaine. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, there was an actual Coke factory in uh, Switzerland. I remember reading the story about somebody talking about their dad or somebody coming, you know, working at the Coke factory. Of course, it's all around World War II it was as well, right? They're making Coca-Cola is the largest manufacturer Coke. of medical grade cocaine in the world. Not Coca-Cola factory, like an actual cocaine factory. Coca-Cola <laughs> makes cocaine. And sells it. Did. Yeah. yeah, if you've ever had to go into surgery and you get cocaine, they do it a lot for sinus surgeries and stuff. They'll dust your sinuses uh, to numb everything and reduce the pain. Um, maybe it has something to do with inflammation, too. I don't know. It was when my dad had his sinus surgery done. Uh, he had it done twice, and they did it both times for him. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably from Coca-Cola because uh, the coca leaves have it. They take it out. I mean, you can't let a good drug go to waste. I'm not saying that for myself. I'm saying that from like an industry standpoint. Right. No, no. I was just thinking. I've got this highly addictive drug. Mm. We were talking about cacao and Coca Cola. Cola is a nut, right? And the Correct. Coca, it's a leaf. To be the the uh, cacao plant, right? So it's actually the combination of a nut and a plant. I don't know. It's an interesting side bit. And it's legal to grow coca in America. You know what else is legal in America? Sativa. Or not sativa. Uh, whatever the plant that sage is. Mm, Salvia, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't have a good. I don't. I don't have a good segue for this. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, listener. Uh, next, I was I was trying to come up with some um, oldest. The uh, let's see, archaeologists in Zambia. Oh, this is from LiveScience.com. Archaeologists in Zambia discovered the oldest wooden structure in the world, dating to four hundred seventy-six thousand years ago. So, going back to or conversation earlier of how old humanity is i think that homo sapiens sapiens showed up on on the stage two hundred thousand years ago so this not these two notched pieces pieces of wood that they have discovered are 476 thousand years ago so this is this is before we as we are right now even you know was it were around so yeah carpentry super old uh, article says a new finding in zambia reveals the oldest known wooden construction shaped by the hands of a human ancestor and demonstrates the ingenuity and technical prowess of our ancient relatives so they discovered 
the oldest evidence of a wooden structure carved crafted by the hands of a human ancestor. Two tree trunks notched like Lincoln logs. You remember those? I used to have those. Were Are you preserved. kidding me? Lincoln logs were like the coolest thing ever. They were. And then I found Legos. Mm-hmm. Same here. Uh, so these were preserved at the bottom of the Colombo River in Zambia. Uh, if the logs estimated 476,000 year old age is correct, it means that woodworking might predate the emergence of our own species, Homo sapiens, and highlights the intelligence of our hominid ancestors. So they unearthed the logs at Colombo Falls on a lake in northern Zambia, a site that has been investigated since the 1950s. Previously, they found uh, around uh, ex- excavations around a small lake just upstream from the falls yielded stone tools, preserved pollen, and wooden artifacts that have helped researchers understand more about human evolution, cough, and culture over the span of hundreds of thousands of years. But a new analysis of five modified pieces of wood from Colombo is pushing back the first through the earliest occupation of the site and giving researchers new insights into the minds of our middle Pleistocene ancestors. So it was uh, this study published on Wednesday, September 20th in the journal Nature. Uh, details the, the wooden objects they unearthed. They include they these include two that were found with stone tools below the river and three that were covered in clay deposits above the river level. These wooden artifacts survived over hundreds of thousands of years due to the permanently elevated water table. Through luminescence dating of sand samples from the site, which involves measuring how long ago the sand grains were exposed to light, pretty freaking cool. Uh, these people found, scientists, these people found three clusters, a cut log and a tapered piece of wood dating to 324,000 years ago, a digging stick dating to 390,000 years ago, and a wooden wedge and two overlapping logs dating to 476,000 years ago. While the small, modified hunks of wood from Colombo Calambo, are pretty similar to 400,000-year-old forging and hunting tools found in Europe and China, the interlocking logs have, quote, no known parallels in the African or Eurasian Paleolithic, the researchers wrote in their study. The upper log, recovered from a layer that also had stone tools, measured 55.6 inches and was found laying on a tree, a large tree trunk at a 75-degree angle. At the bottom of the top log and the, and the top of the bottom trunk had evidence of chopping and scraping to make a notch, enabling them to snugly fit together. Wood from tree trunks enabled humans to construct large objects, says the scientist. Life in a periodically uh, wet floodplain would be enhanced by constructing a raised platform, walkway, or foundation for dwellings. The newfound objects 
could push back the dates of the earliest examples of woodworking and help scientists to better understand the technology our hominin ancestors had. It is, is a quote, it is unthinkable that hominins would not use wood given its widespread nature. Professor at Oxford says, uh, the new study shows that humans and hominins used resources that were available to them. Uh, scientists also suggested that the very early date of the notched logs calls for a rethink of how human culture and biological evolution is understood. So, if anything else, nothing else, we've learned that uh, carpentry is a very, very, very old profession. And predates. Humans so it's older than prostitution. It is, apparently. Or, or just as old. All right. This next story is actually the first one I had listed, but because of the whole water tie-in, we went with, with that route. But did you know that there is an opposite of deja vu? Have you ever... Uh, I'm Experience. interested. Tell me more. Well, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it is uh, Jamez Vu. Okay, so this is from sciencealert.com. I think I put that in there for you, Adam. Um, rep so the opposite of deja vu exists, and it's even more uncanny. And it starts out with repetition has a strange relationship with the mind. Take the experience of deja vu. When we wrongly believe we have experienced a novel situation in the past, leaving us with a an spooky sense of pastness, with with a spooky sense of pastness. ScienceAlert.com needs better editors. <laughs> uh, continuing, uh, but we have discovered that deja vu is actually a window into the workings of our memory system. Our research found that the phenomenon arises when the part of the brain which detects familiarity desynchronizes with reality. Deja vu is the signal which alerts you to this weirdness. It is a type of fact-checking for the memory system. But repetition can do something even more uncanny and unusual. The opposite of deja vu is jamais vu. And that is spelled J-A-M-A-I-S. I'm assuming it's French, probably. Deja vu is French, so yeah. Uh, so this happens when something you know to be familiar feels unreal or novel in some way. In our research, which has just won an Ig Nobel Award for Literature, we investigated the mechanism behind the phenomena. Jamais vu may involve looking at a familiar face and finding it suddenly unusual or unknown. Musicians have it momentarily, losing their way in a very familiar passage of music. You may have had it going to a familiar place and becoming disoriented or seeing it with new eyes. It's an experience which is even rarer than deja vu and perhaps even more unusual and unsettling. 
when you ask people to describe it in questionnaires about experiences in daily life, they give accounts like, while writing in my exams, I write a word correctly like appetite, but I keep looking at the word over and over again because I have second thoughts that it might be wrong. It happens to me all the time. <laughs> I don't know if that's just because I'm a bad speller or what. But, uh, in daily life, it can be provoked by repetition or staring, but it needn't be. One of us, Akira, has had it driving on the motorway, necess necessitating that he pull over onto the hard shoulder to allow his unfamiliar unfamiliarity with the pedals and the steering wheel to reset. Thankfully, in the wild, it is rare. This, uh, this, this, the staring part, this brings to mind ideas of scrying. Like, what could this play in, in that kind of in a practice like that? Just something interesting to, to, uh, ponder. Uh, continuing, uh, we don't know much about Shamez Vu but we guessed it would be pretty easy to induce in the laboratory. If you just ask someone to repeat something over and over, they often find it becomes meaningless and confusing. This was the basic design of our experiments on Jamais Vu. In a first experiment, 94 undergrads spent their time repeatedly writing the same word. They did it with 12 different words, which ranged from commonplace, such as door, to less commonplace, such as Sward, S-W-A-R-D. We asked participants to copy out the word as quickly as possible, but told them they were allowed to stop and gave them a few reasons why they might stop, including feeling peculiar, being bored, or their hand hurting. Stopping because things began to feel strange was the most common option chosen, with about 70% stopping at least once for feeling something we defined as shamas vu. This usually occurred after about one minute, 33 repetitions, and typically for familiar words. In a second experiment, we used only the word the, figuring that it was the most common. This time, 55% of people stopped writing for reasons consistent with our definition of jamais vu, but after 27 repetitions. People described their experiences as ranging from they lose their meaning the more you look at them to seemed to lose control of hands. And our favorite, it doesn't seem right, almost looks like it's not really a word, but someone's tricked me into thinking it is. It took us around 15 years to write up and publish this scientific work. In 2003, we were acting on a hunch that people would feel weird while repeatedly writing a word. One of us had noticed that the lines he had been asked to repeatedly write as a punishment at secondary school made him feel strange, as if it weren't real. It took 15 years because we weren't as clever as we thought we were. It wasn't the novelty that we thought it was. In 1907, one of psychology's unsung founding figures, Margaret Floyd Washburn, 
published an experiment with one of her students which showed the loss of associative power in words that were stared at for three minutes. The words became strange, losing their meaning, and became fragmented over time. We had reinvented the wheel. Such introspective methods and investigations had simply fallen out of favor in psychology. Our unique contribution is the idea that transforms and loses is the idea that transformations and losses of meaning in repetition are accompanied by a particular feeling, jamais vu. Jamais vu is a signal to you that something has become too automatic, too fluent, too repetitive. It helps us to snap out of our current processing, and the feeling of unreality is in fact a reality check. It makes sense that this has to happen. Our cognitive systems must stay flexible, allowing us to direct our attention to wherever is needed rather than getting lost in repetitive tasks for too long. We are only beginning to understand Jamais Vu. The main scientific account is of satination. The overloading of a representation until it becomes nonsensical. Related ideas include the verbal transformation effect, whereby repeating a word over and over activates so-called neighbors so that you start off listening to the looped word tress over and over, but then listeners report hearing dress, stress, or florist. It also seems, excuse me, it also seems related to research into OCD obsessive compulsive disorder which looked at the effect of compulsively staring at objects such as lit gas rings like repeatedly writing the effects are strange and mean that reality begins to slip but this might help us understand and treat OCD if repeatedly checking the door if repeatedly checking the door is locked makes the task meaningless it will mean that it is difficult to know if the door is locked, and so a vicious cycle starts. Ultimately, we are flattered to have been awarded the Ig Nobel, I never heard of that, IG Nobel Prize for Literature. The winners of these prizes contribute scientific works such which uh, make you laugh and then make you think. Okay, so that's the thing behind the Ig Nobel. Hopefully our work on Jamais Vu will inspire more research and even greater insights in the near future so after learning exactly what this is can't you recall any time that's ever happened to you adam yeah repeatedly hearing something over and over and be until it becomes meaningless yeah, yeah sounds like my entire uh grade school and high school experience <laughs> right Good old edumacation. Uh, but yeah, totally. Like, um, I've had that with writing. Like they're saying the repetitive thing. Did that in school plenty of times as punishments. Okay, not maybe plenty, but I remember it, right? And then uh, just the even, uh, even the saying, like the repetition audibly of any word. You do it long enough, it's just going to begin to sound weird. So, yeah, it's a little bit more lighthearted 
there, uh, headline there. Um, let's see. Got about half hour left. We still got the sword segments. What uh, see, we can do another. We got time for one more headline, I think, and then we will get into the sword segments. Uh, I'll let uh, Adam pick. Adam, do you want to hear about another study that uncovers the origin of conscious awareness, which is kind of kind of long. It deals with babies. Study using babies. Um, or gene-edited spider silk, stronger than Kevlar. Or we can find out what happens when someone dies in space. Or I have this uh, story about a 2,200-year-old shoe found in a mine. What, uh, what direction do you want to take us, Adam? Death in space. Death in space, all right. What happens when someone dies in space? Because there is precedent, right? So Somebody's died in space? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that in a second. Put that in I mean, no. for you. <clears throat> I know that's happened plenty with animals. Of course, there's been so many secret space programs. Of course, it's happened. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, yeah. Even if uh, we don't hear about the precedent, I'm pretty sure that that's uh, happened. But this is from sciencealert.com. And yeah. Uh, there's no question that sending human beings to space is an extraordinarily difficult and perilous proposition. Since human exploration began just over 60 years ago, 20 people have died. 14 in the NASA space shuttle tragedies of 1986 and 2003. Three cosmonauts during the 1971 Soyuz 11 mission, and three astronauts in the Apollo 1 launch pad fire in 1976. So maybe those, they didn't get, I don't know about the Russians, but those other guys didn't really make it to space. Uh, anyhow, given how complicated human spaceflight is, it's actually remarkable how few people have lost their lives so far. But NASA plans to send a crew to the moon in 2025 and astronauts to Mars in the next decade. I think Elon Musk is going to beat them to that. <laughs> uh, commercial space flight is becoming routine. A space, as space travel becomes more common, so does the possibility that someone might die along the way. It brings to mind a gloomy but necessary question to ask. If someone dies in space, what happens to the body? As a space medical doctor who works to find new ways to keep astronauts healthy, uh, I and my team, not me, this is the person writing this, at the Trans, Trans, uh, Translational Research Institute for Space Health, want to make sure space explorers are as healthy as they can be for space missions. Here is how death in space would be handled today. If someone died on a low Earth orbit mission, such as aboard the International Space Station, the crew could return the body to Earth in a capsule within a matter of hours. If it happened on the moon, the crew would return the body, return home with the body in just a, a few days. NASA has already detailed protocols in place for such events. Because of that quick return, it is likely that preservation of the body would not be NASA's major concern. Instead, the number one priority, priority would be making sure the remaining crew members return safely to Earth. Things would be different if an astronaut died 
during the 300 million mile trip to Mars. In that scenario, the crew probably wouldn't be able to turn around and go back. Instead, the body would likely return to Earth along with the crew at the end of the mission, which would be a couple of years later. In the meantime, the crew would presumably preserve the body in a separate chamber or specialized body bag. The steady temperature and humidity inside the space vehicle would theoretically help preserve the body. But in those scenarios, I'm sorry, but all those scenarios would apply only if someone died in a pressurized environment, like a space station or a spacecraft. What would happen if someone stepped outside into space without the protection of a spacesuit? The astronaut would die almost instantly. The loss of pressure and the exposure to the vacuum of space would make it impossible for the astronaut to breathe, and blood and other body fluids would boil. What would happen if an astronaut stepped out onto the moon or Mars without a spacesuit? Well, the moon has nearly no atmosphere, a very tiny amount. Mars has a very thin atmosphere and almost no oxygen, allegedly. So the result would be about the same as exposure to open space, suffocation and boiling blood. Suppose the astronaut died after landing while on the surface of Mars. Cremation isn't desirable. It requires too much energy that the surviving crew needs for other purposes. A burial isn't a good idea either. Bacteria and other organisms from the body could contaminate, contaminate the Martian surface. Instead, the crew would likely preserve the body in a specialized body bag until it could be returned to Earth. There are still many unknowns about how explorers would deal with a death. It's just, it's not just the question of what to do with the body. Helping the crew deal with the loss and helping the grieving families back on Earth are just as important as handling the remains of the person who died. But to truly colonize other worlds, whether the moon, Mars, or a planet outside of our solar system, this grim scenario will require planning and protocol. Okay, so uh, I will fully admit that I, I expected this, this article to be about uh, the processes that the body goes through with uh, you know, decaying while in space. So not, uh, not quite what I expected. I say uh, just stick them outside of the craft and see what grows. See what grows? <laughs> yeah, you're going through space. You got a nice little Petri dish there. Might as well bring back something to study. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. Um, I like how that person. What did they say? They were a space uh, psychologist or something. That reminds me, a space medical doctor. Yeah, that reminds me that there are there are uh, programs being offered for uh, degrees for off-world uh, situations like that. Space doctor. Like if I forget, to, if you give me just a second, I can try to look it up. Space Force. Like, if you wanted to be Doctor Bones from Star Trek, you could actually be. You could. That, that's. I mean, that's a possibility. <laughs> Gotta get tapped on the shoulder. I prefer to be the Doctor. Doctor Who. The Doctor from Voyager. Oh yeah, 
that he stole medical doctor. Yeah. The holograph. Space programs. This is uh, this is me scrolling through Azazel because this is where he points out. Uh, what do you need? Oh, here we go. Master of space operations. Master of space resources. Space medicine. Space systems engineering. And these are all uh, classes offered in the U.S. In the U.K., there's a new one. I haven't seen this one before. Uh, space science and engineering, space technology, MSC, whatever MSC means. But uh, yeah, so Embry Riddle Aeronautical University is um, offering a Master of Space Operations, a Master of Space resources is being offered as a uh, graduate program from the colorado school of mines and uh, space medicine let's see this is being offered through uh ucla emergency medicine space medicine established in 2021 the two-year fellowship and then uh, space systems engineering uh, John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, uh, Whiting School of Engineering. So, uh, just a couple of real-world examples of how you might be able to get off-world if you want to go into one of those programs. So I think that, 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 that excuse me, I don't know what that was all about, stuttering. That does it, uh, that about does it for the silver segment. And, uh, Let's see here. I think we did learn a little something new. Um, silver, silver linings, like oh yeah, uh, plastics. There, there is uh, some young university, maybe even high school student, came up with this bacteria or something that would eat plastic. So we have, I know, that microplastics has become a, a you know a talking point recently. Like there are solutions for these problems that we can fix within a generation or two if we're just allowed to implement the, uh, the technology. So I guess that would be the ultimate silver lining for this segment. It's got to stop the deluge of production first. Another water reference. I love it. So silver or no sword segment, sword segment. Uh, Adam, were you here last episode? I can't remember. You were doing... Uh... I believe I might have had a headache. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, we started a going through a new book um, entitled the 12, excuse me, the 12 Divine Virtues by Fortune de Saint-Germain, a direct descendant of the Count de Saint-Germain, or Count Saint-Germain, which uh, you may or may not be familiar with. I know Adam is from our interviews in 13 questions has been a saint germain has become a character uh, that i've been very become very interested in and uh cool guy really neat both both fortune and uh the the famous alchemist i uh, lived over three three centuries 
pretty cool guy. But uh, Fortune, Fortune has been featured on um, Crow Triple Seven a lot. I won't say a lot, but over the last few years, and got uh, a very very interesting perspective. Something that I uh, truly cherish and uh, find value in, and it uh, has helped me empower myself to uh, to become a hero and stay out of the the victim mentality. So the uh, the chapter which we were looking at of the twelve divine virtues is the the one that has to deal with wisdom. And these aren't, this isn't like your typical book. There's only like a line or two on each page. So these are really like just uh, sayings, I guess. And if he is attributing one of the sayings to somebody else, he does mention it. But if, uh, if not, then I'm assuming that this is something that Fortune has come up with himself. And which is why he has included it in his book for, for all of us to read and to share and to hopefully get something out of. So we might not get through all of them today. And uh, as I read each sentence, Adam, uh, feel free to interject with any thoughts that, that pop up or if you want me to repeat something or, you know, any of the above. But trying to see how many there are we're starting on page 46 and there's 88 to go so yeah probably won't won't get through them all but uh we can certainly make this into a multiple episode endeavor and i think we ended on this one even the greatest drama becomes comedy once we sit down and i think the point that I brought up last time, especially looking back at all the interviews with 13 questions that we did, is that when you zoom out of a situation, a traumatic situation, it often can become a comedy. So, that, I don't know, something that uh, I have found is a, a, wor- a trick, a, a trick of, percept- of, of uh, perception, right, perspective. To, to help with something that might be tragic right yeah tran yeah you you uh perform some alchemy and you transmorph or change the energy into something else if something makes you mad as hell and you're super angry well that's a lot of energy and you can refocus it into something else you definitely see this in uh morbid professions uh you, you know the term gallows humor why is it gallows humor? Because with something so serious and horrible, sometimes all you can do is add humor. Or a humorous. All is manifestation of the divine, even that which we judge as bad. One particle of God's energy need not fear any other. All evil is born of judgment. 
when we heal ourselves, we heal God. The human soul is the battleground between God and Satan. In the soul, the battle is taking place in every moment of life. And that's from Padre Pio. The devil can do anything except get lost. This, this, this one just reminds me of uh, Napoleon Hill and uh, Outwitting the Devil, which is one of those books which I, we will cover in, in the sword segment down the road. It just re it requires me to outline, I think, a few things. We'll, we'll present it like that. Or maybe, uh, maybe we'll get creative and do, do a uh, back-and-forth dialogue. Since it is an interview, we could get some... Uh, kind of like a reading a play or a, a sonic question and answer thing, you know what I'm talking about. So another Padre Pio quote, if the soul realized the merits that it acquires in temptations suffered and overcome with patience, it would be tempted to say, Lord, send me some temptations. Kind of an interesting conundrum. Tempted. You're, you're dealing with temptations, with patience, and then you're tempted to say, give me more temp temptations. temptations. Vegas is a godly place, apparently. <laughs> See, it's in the, the paradoxical paradoxical statements and or, like like these or in general, I guess, is, is where I am drawn to the most and where mm -hmm. it's my mind turning. So, and that's where you find, you know, the marriage of the of seeming opposites, the alchemical marriage. I mean, that's where that union is where you find. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the light and the dark. You cannot see in the absolute dark and you cannot see in the blinding light. There's a happy medium to all aspects of light or of life, no matter what it is. He who will be ordained must first dance with the devil. Yeah. That's from Rumi, R-U-M-I. Which wolf wins, the black or the white? Whichever one you feed, replied the medicine man. We've all seen that meme, right? There's two wolves inside of you. I, I love how that plays together because it goes into one of my favorite sayings that, you know, like uh, violence is, is, is not something that should ever be used out of turn. But if a wolf is attacking your family, you need to use absolute violence and finality to do the right thing. So you need to be able to become something that you don't want to be to do the right thing. I think that's one of the basic aspects of life. It's it's the trickster aspect of life, that the truth is in between uh, the known, the light, the dark, you know, that we live in, in a gray world, if you will. Yeah, the... Uh... Yeah, absolutely. 
Don't be afraid to confront your devil. The Rebbenitzer Rabbi. I'm not really familiar with that person. But uh, I was going to say something about the last one, Adam. I lost my thought. Oh, yeah. Being uncomfortable. Like uh, feeding which wolf wins. Like which one do you feed in the light and the dark? Uh, oftentimes the truth is uncomfortable and we don't uh you know we we don't we it's not enjoyable for us which is you know sometimes we're too too much on the side of dark we're too much on the side of light it's finding a happy medium that we're not familiar with and because we're not familiar with it it makes it uncomfortable but just because it's not known it's unknown right doesn't mean that we should shy away from it because ultimately we know that is where truth lies and that's where we need to get. Without me, you are nothing, said the devil. No, without me, you are nothing, replied the master. I know you. Be careful, said the demon. You be careful. I know you, said the master. The teacher fought the devil, sometimes bravely, sometimes afraid, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. After much experience, he told the devil, go away before someone drops a house on you. In the end, the master said, come closer. You are no more devil than I. I think that one's pretty cool. Bring these dark parts of yourself home to me. He attributes that to divine love. Surrender always brings something as good, if not better. And that was, this reminds me of the uh, the saying that I started this segment with last week, which was, if you want to gain in knowledge, you you want you add something, right? You're learning something new. You're adding to that pile. If you want to gain in wisdom, you want to subtract something. We want to take something away, right? So surrender always brings something as good if not better, whether you're, you know, making room for something else in your life or or just you know, letting go, not being so future trippy, right? That can be very freeing. Instead of God, I'm sorry, instead of telling God how big your, the storms are, tell the storms how big God is. Thy will be done is infinity. God gives the greatest lessons to those who love the most.
My son has committed every sin. He won't listen to anyone. What do I do? Love him more, answered the priest. If it's painful and toil, it's not love. Love with conditions is no love at all. Disrespect for the lowest is disrespect for the highest. As above, so below. It's not important to me. Why is it important to you? He attributes that to divine love on the vanities. You can only see in others what you see in yourself. And we'll end with this one. We attract to ourselves what we are in our hearts. And he attributes that to divine law. So we'll finish the rest of these. Uh, maybe we won't we won't get them, we won't get through them all next episode, but eventually uh, we'll we'll get through this chapter. We made it to page seventy, so we've got eighteen more pages to go. But uh, this last little note before we wrap up, it's not important to me. Why is it important to you? Divine love on the vanities. It's something that uh, I don't know. Just I guess I'll share with this personally. That's struggling with with uh, various aspects of, of being vain is uh, something that's come to light personally, like for me. Like I didn't know I had that streak in me, right? But uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the attribution of importance is something that Mark England talked a lot about during his uh, pro-cabulary pro course that uh, we took on 13 Questions. It is a very important to pay attention to where you place importance. Uh, that can be, you know, half half of the the problem, right? Issue right there is reshifting that uh, level of importance you're attributing to whatever it is that may not deserve the severity of importance that you're you're putting on it. But I digress. Um, Adam, any last-minute thoughts before I give the final uh, reminder and wrap-up? No, I do. I like that. Uh, I like this book. I think it's a great segment. I'm looking forward to continuing it. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's a little change, change of pace for us here uh, on the show. But uh, yeah, it's uh, good. Uh, good nuggets of wisdom, right? Which is what I kind of named the last episode the rock hounding for wisdom nuggets but uh aside from that uh, please everyone do do remember to visit mysticalwares.com and sign up for the weekly scalar energy session uh, this week is immune system boost so head on over to mysticalwares.com scroll down to the 
uh, scalar energy button, click it, and then scroll down that page where you will find a bunch more information on what exactly scalar energy is and how uh, Derek's machine uses Royal Raymond Wright's frequency list to work off of. And uh, the weekly area, I guess, that is picked is based off of group feedback. So get in there, sign up, see if you uh, notice anything different. Tell me about it. Uh, I'm interested. Uh, or write back to Derek and get involved with the group and become become part of the next uh, decision-making uh, uh, group for, for next for next week. Uh, it is a free service. This is why I'm so... Uh, adamant uh, on reminding people at the end of the show is because it costs you absolutely nothing. All you have to do is uh, sign up through the checkout process, like you're going buying anything else on the internet, but there's nothing in your cart. It costs zero money, uh, nothing to lose, right? You even get a text message to remind you when it starts, because these these start at 11 a.m. on Fridays, Eastern Time. So, a nice little reminder to uh, let you know you've got some immune system boostinogens coming your way. And besides that, everybody, please uh, do share the show, rate the show on whatever platform uh, that you're using. Help spread the love any way that you can. And until next time, chrononauts, carpe diem, show.